Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals of the Lord God had made. He, made, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some, some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man of, and the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord coming as he was, as he was walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who, who told you you were naked? Uh, you, have you eaten from the, tree, from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and he will, you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in child labor. With, with pain... Uh, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Uh, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. From, uh, since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, sir. Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you all. We're going to continue on in the series of Genesis today. And today we are in chapter 3. People have said that if you really want to know the full Bible, um, you can kind of get it, even from chapters 1 to 3. So I've been spending a little time on these three chapters. There's so much in it, really. <laughs> but I do want to kind of um, simplify it to maybe just three points today as well. So the three points that I have for you today is, number one, from relationship to objectification. Number two is from song to blame. Number three, from fall to grace. From relationship to objectification, 
from song to blame, and from fall to grace. You know, these days the word objectification really has come out, and we need to know what that really means. It really does affect us who we are and how we treat others. Um, I believe these days we are more in tune and in sync and sympathetic to even virtual creatures more than we are to each other. As long as we get that pocket monster, it doesn't matter what I do, that kind of thing. There was a new study released on June 7th. This is so interesting. And I'm going to get to the whole objectification part, but I want to share this study with you. In June 7th from Social Science and Medicine, and they studied IPV, which is intimate partner violence. Uh, intimate partner violence is most suffer, mostly suffered by women. About 30% in the world have suffered IPV. And of murdered women, 38.6% are killed by their partners. This is one of the things that you want to really study and get into it and why this is happening, how we can start preventing it, what measures we can take to educate people. And the, one of the really interesting and more, most intriguing parts of the study was that, and this study was done in the EU, and this is a quote from uh, Enrique Gracia, PhD professor in the Department of Social Psychology in University of Valencia, said uh, high prevalence IPV against women and high levels of gender equality would appear contradictory, but these apparently opposite statements appear to be true in Nordic countries, producing what could be called the Nordic paradox. Despite this paradox being one of the most puzzling issues in the field, interestingly, this is a research question rarely asked and, no one, no, and one that remains unanswered. What this means is the more progressive we are, and we've been talking a little bit about gender roles and what gender identity is even in the past here, the more progressive and the more equal a country claims to be, I'm not saying they are, but a country claims to be, uh, the, the higher the IPV is. And this is what they are now calling the Nordic paradox. So the more equality is apparently achieved by a country, the more violence happens toward women. That almost makes absolutely no sense. That's why it's called the Nordic Paradox. So then start, people started questioning it. So maybe because it is a progressive country or nation, people, especially women, are more emboldened to speak out against what has been done to them. And they are more likely to disclose uh, violence that has been committed. Maybe that's the reason why. And the study had been done against that, and actually it's the opposite. The more progressive, apparently, women reported less, especially in the Nordic countries, around 10 to 20 percent, they're saying, reported. This is so interesting to me, but I don't think, and a lot of people are angry, and so we don't want to it's, it's not really released, perhaps, in the public as much. But just like the professor said, we want to put this out there so that people can continue to study. Why is this happening? Why are these numbers this way? And one of the things that they don't ask, and this is what a lot of people are saying now, it's only been a month, 
But a lot of people are speculating now, if you look at these Nordic countries, one of the main things that they boast of isn't just equality, it's also lack of religion. And because of lack of religion, people don't. In some place where religion is very out there and it's part of their culture, it's part of who they are, and their, the IPV level is down to 10%, 12%, 12%. Of I think what we really need to see is that there is a problem. And what we're trying to do, and I, I've been speaking on this in the past, what we're trying to do is we have this whole slew of problems, injustices in the world. And what we are trying to do is we're trying to hit those injustices where they are. We're trying to figure out and solve it. We're trying to, we're trying to remedy it right there. But what we are missing as a world, as a humanity, is that our core is messed up. At our core, we don't know our values. We don't know and we don't see that there is an imago day in each of us. And so we cannot objectify the other because they have the image of God. Once you realize this, how can I promote this injustice? How can I say this is good or this, this we got to keep on doing this or there you deserve this? We cannot make that excuse. But this objectification continues to be prevalent, not only in our society, but in the world today. You know, when people look at the story, people immediately see what's on face value. They look at the story. This is a story that you may have heard many times. On face value, what is it? The serpent goes and tries to tempt and deceive the woman. The woman gets fooled, gives fruit to the man. The, man, the man's like dumb because he doesn't say anything throughout the whole conversation. He's just sitting there, he's like, oh, okay. But, and then there's the fall of mankind. But we, we, don't, we can't miss this. There is a huge, huge thing that the serpent did that a lot of people miss. What is the craftiest thing the serpent did? It's he objectified God. God is spoken of in the third person here. See, did God really say? So instead of going to the God really say part, we got to go, did God, and then stop there. Because God was some, someone that was supposed to be there close to them, to have a relationship, with them, to continue to walk with them in the garden, to be friends. And yet now here we have the serpent say, objectifying God, saying, look, God is someone far away. But don't you see, that's what we've also become. When we talk about God, we talk about God in the third person. We talk about God as if he's so far away, he's not close to us. So then we can say to each other, did God really say? What's your theology? What are the doctrines that you adhere to? Did God And we see that this is something that humanity falls for right from the get-go. Once you objectify God, and God just became, becomes an object, not a person, not someone that you have an intense, intimate, close relationship with, but is objectified, then everything, everything starts to fall just like a stack of dominoes starts falling. Once that peace falls, everything else falls. And then you start getting the half-truths. Half-truths some, have some part of truth to it, 
But that's not why it's called a half-truth. It's called a half-truth because it's meant to deceive. More interestingly enough, this is what we use and we're so used to. You know, our new generation growing up, we're just going to be listening to half-truths all the time. And it's going to be like second nature. Oh, yeah, that's just what it is. Half-truths in not only in our conversation, but what we see, what we buy, how we receive certain things. Even something simple, like Rice Krispies. Rice Krispies put on the back of their cereal, we are there to continue to help your family's immunity or their immune system. And it says, this is what, what it says, Rice Krispies is, the, is still the same delicious cereal you love, but now with an excellent source of vitamins A, B, C, and E, antioxidants and nutrients that help support the body's immune system. This is, this is a half-truth. Because, yes, they injected it with A, B, C, and E, but they fall kind of in the category of ox, antioxidants and nutrients, not really all of it, so there is a little bit there, but then they continue to, by doing this, what they're doing is they're saying that we actually help your immunosupportive systems, but because of the rice, sugar, and high fructose corn syrup, it's almost all eliminated, that the vitamins that you ingest. But they won't say that, right? Because they're trying to promote their product. And no one gets angry about that, this half-truth. It's meant to deceive. And once God has objectified, these half-truths become easier to swallow. And then eventually we get to the point where we say, you will not surely die. And we swallow that pill. To have a true relationship with someone is something incredibly beautiful. But to have a relationship with someone really means that we are equal partners. And that's what marriage was meant to be. Equal in the eyes of God, equal in the way that he had created man and woman. But once we start objectifying God, then everything else falls apart. It's so interesting because in this, in this, in this, in this story, Adam doesn't say one thing. You know, you know, truth be told, when I, was, um, when I was a kid, I used to love listening to um, when people would tell the stories of the Bible. And then there's this one pastor who once said when I was a kid, um, you know, the woman was deceived. That's why women are liars. And I was like, whoa, this guy's very bold. <laughs> and then... Uh, he was never invited back to our church again, but you know, people, people can speculate, people do all these things, but we want to see the whole story. That's, that's why it's so interesting that people can contract all these things out of, out of this story, but the woman starts talking, and she says something. She says, oh, yeah, we can't eat of it, but we can't touch it either. And then you start thinking, wait, God didn't actually say that. First of all, God gave the commandment to Adam. Adam. He told Adam, you can eat of any fruit in this garden, of any tree, except that one tree. And then so Adam knew what the rule was. And then once it got to Eve, somehow that telephone game really got messed up with just one person. 
or he taught it wrong. So you have to start thinking, wait, something went wrong here. Did she just make it up? Because if she was wrong, wouldn't Adam be like, no, 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 that, that's not right. Actually, it's just you can't eat of the, free, of the fruit in the tree. But he doesn't say anything. It's as if he's mute. And he doesn't do anything when the serpent is talking to Eve. And it's interesting, too, because once she takes the fruit, in verse 6, it all collapses. It's like you can set up the dominoes, and it takes a long time. But once the serpent topples one down, it just, in, in an instant, in verse 6, everything just collapses. You see all this, all this collapsing happening in just one verse because it was set up by the serpent. And then Adam eats. Once we object, objectify God in our lives and God just becomes God, not God, then it's no wonder When there is a half-truth presented to us, we so easily fall. Oh, God's not there for you. If God was there, why would he do this to you? If God really loved you, why would you be going through the things that you are going through right now? If God is really real, why is there so much suffering in the world? Because God is up there somewhere really far away doing all these decision-making by himself apparently in some kind of office space. He's not close here. And we're not communing with him. We're not talking with him. We're not, we don't have a relationship with him anymore. We have objectified God. The most detrimental thing that really happens is from song to blame. Adam does say something. First thing he says in the Bible is, wow, this woman flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. She's so beautiful. The second thing that he says is she did it. It's her fault. (laughs) There's something wrong here. That's the second thing he says. You know, we, and I talked about last week, but, you know, her being from his rib to be protected by his side and that, that beautiful statement that was said, none of that actually happens. When push comes to shove, he is scared. And when he is scared, what happens? He throws her under the bus. It's her fault. But not only that, he blames her. He blames her and he blames God. It's the woman that you made for me. You're to blame, both the woman and you, not me. I'm pretty good. I was just sitting there. I'm just sitting there enjoying my time in the sun, and then all of a sudden, all this is happening. It's not my fault. We love to blame. We love to shift that responsibility to other people when we know that's not true, that's not right. And our worldview becomes skewed. Blaming is pointing the finger at someone else so that you keep the focus off of yourself. One evening, several college students wanted to play a prank, and they put Limburger cheese on their roommate's uh, upper lip. And then upon awakening, the young man said, this room stinks. 
And then he walked out into the hall and he goes, this hall stinks. And then he left the dormitory and he said, the whole world stinks. When we continue to shift the focus away and continue to blame others, the worldview that we live in is not reality. This is why politicians will never apologize now for anything that they did on either side. Whenever something goes wrong, we have another party blaming the other party and vice versa. No party will say this is our responsibility, this was our fault. It's the other people. That's why we have these problems. It's this other party who's not addressing the issue. That's why we have these problems. It's all about the blame game and how well you can do it. When we spill coffee on ourselves in our lap while we are driving, it's not because I put the coffee in between my legs while I'm driving. It's because the coffee was too hot. It's not my fault I got run over in the highway. I needed to catch the Pokemon, and it was in the highway. It's Pokemon Go's fault. And the mom's like, yes, it is Pokemon Go's fault. Pokemon Go is apparently the devil. We never want to blame ourselves for the things that go wrong. We always want to point at somebody else. It's your fault that I'm having a rough time. Why are we having a rough time? It's that group's fault. Oh, is this church having a rough time? Then it's because of this group over here. We never want to point the finger at ourselves. And this is what Adam does. And you see, this is why the relationship breaks down. What was supposed to be the most intimate of relationships that God had forged and married becomes disintegrated through blame. We are supposed to be lifting up the other But we do not. We tear each other down by blaming. And once we start blaming, we start mudslinging. Once we start mudslinging, we actually literally believe the mudsling that we have thrown. Isn't that really interesting? It's because of this person that I have problems. This person is the incarnate evil. Satan must be controlling him or her. We actually literally believe that. We love to blame because of this. Now I have this. Only if this went away. So Adam points to Eve. What does Eve do? Oh, it was the snake. The snake did it. He made me do it. Oh, poor Eve, though. But seriously, like, she had no one to blame now because it's like, Adam believed both God and her, so she can't go back. So she went, all right, it's the snake's fault. And continues this blaming cycle. A lot of us, this is our initial and this is our most basic reaction when something goes wrong. You know, most people, when they're fired or let go from a job, no one goes, yeah, it's my fault, actually. I, I was doing a horrible job. Most people go, my boss is terrible. This work environment was not healthy for me. That's what most people do. Perhaps it was true, but I don't think 99% of the time that's true. And yet 99% of the time, this is how we respond. We thought it would make us happier or make ourselves feel better when we blame the other or at least a little less sad. 
I didn't get that A because my professor is crazy. But guess what happens? It makes us more cynical. It makes us more bitter. It made us angry. The result of blame, now you actually see the fruit. You know, once we start blaming, we really can't see each other as the Imago Dei. Once we start blaming and start pointing fingers and saying, this group is stupid, that, that movement is dumb. Once I start blaming, you know what happens? I cannot mourn with those who mourn. I can't rejoice with those who rejoice. I cannot have a relationship anymore with anybody. And the basic blocks of relationship disintegrate. They're all fallen. Excuse me. There is one person here that doesn't blame. You have to wonder, and this is from fall to grace, you have to wonder, why would God even bother asking? In fact, throughout the Bible, God asks, what have you done? Where are you? What are you doing? Is it because God doesn't know? When, when a child does something wrong, you know he did or she did something wrong, and you go to the child, what did you do? What does the child usually say? He's like, nothing, I didn't do nothing. Why are you pointing fingers at me? Why would a parent go to the child and say that? And God goes to us and says, where are you? What have you done? Is it because he doesn't know? Is it because he had no clue? And he's like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? Or is it because he wanted to give them a chance to come back to him? All throughout the Bible, we see this grace happening. All throughout the Bible, even though they sin and upsets God, he gives them a chance to come back. He says, where are you? What have you done? That's an invitation to come back from the objectification back into relationship. And he is the one that initiates that. But we don't know exactly how to do that. It's really hard for us because once we become broken, everything becomes broken, how can we fix it? Because now my worldview is skewed. Everything in the world stinks. It smells. It's everyone's fault. It's these politicians. It's the system is rigged. It's the people that I'm surrounded with. I don't have good friends. There's always some kind of politics. And no matter what kind of organization I go to, everything stinks. So how can I see the world in a new light? Even when that chance is offered. Now I say you can't. How can we see an option that we can't see? How can we choose the option we can't see? And this is what I honestly think. I think hell is a place full of broken relationships. Just can't hold a relationship anymore. 
It's always that person's fault. Ultimately, what we are saying is what Adam is saying. It's your fault, God. You did this. You could have prevented it. Why didn't you? You did this. This is your fault. And that relationship, the most important relationship of all, becomes severed. Now, that's the thing about relationships. Relationships, I only think of all the things that we could perhaps salvage. You know, we could salvage an old car. We can get uh, uh, some toy that we like and salvage that. Clothing, whatever it is, we can start salvaging. But relationships are probably the hardest things to salvage. You know, once you have a bad relationship with somebody, how are you going to salvage that relationship? How can both of you heal? It is so difficult. In fact, I would say it's near impossible. That's why if you have a relationship now with your spouse, it's so important that you do your best to keep it, to make sure that it is holy and encouraging and edifying. And if it's slipping away, now is the time to make those changes. If you have your relationship with your parents or your children and it's deteriorating before it completely disintegrates, it's time for you to start salvaging as best you can because that is the most difficult thing to do. But what happens when that relationship is completely severed? What happens when it has disintegrated? Where's the solution? What do we do? Is there anything for us? What happens when we've already made the mistake and my relationship is done for? Does God have anything for me then? I talked about in Luke where Jesus is given a piece of news and the Tower of Siloam falls on somebody, a a group of people. And people are like, why did this happen? And then he goes, do you think they were bigger sinners than you? Is that why the tower fell on them? Is that why a disaster happened to these people? Did this horrific accident or attack, one other part was an attack where a pilot came and killed people. It was a vicious attack. It was a terrorist attack. And another one was an accident where a building fell on people. And it's like, why did this happen, Jesus? Is it because of their sin? And Jesus goes, do you think that you're better than them? Do you think it's because you sin less than them that this happened to them? No. But I say, if you don't repent, the same thing will happen to you. You have to repent. What is Jesus saying? Jesus, it's so, why isn't he addressing that exact question that we're asking? Why is this happening, God? Why did it happen in Nice? In Orlando, in Baton Rouge, in Minnesota, in New York City. Why are all these things happening around the world, God? Is it because there's sin? Is it because they deserved it? And Jesus would say the same thing to us now. Unless you repent, the same thing is going to happen to you. What's that mean, though? What does that mean? When we can only think in terms of what is going on in the world, Jesus is honestly getting to the core. But not only that, he is offering something bigger 
than the problem. In verse 15, even though the man and woman deserved the punishment they had coming to them, because all they did was blame, their relationship is severed, they deserve punishment, what has happened is God doesn't blame. In fact, as even though God gives the punishment, in verse 15, he goes, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other, in other translations, he'll crush your head and you will strike his heel. What God is offering here is something so much bigger than the problems we have. And what does that mean? How can God offer something bigger as the solution? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, one of his characters says, all hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world. But it is smaller than one atom of this world, the real world. Look at the butterfly. If it swallowed hell, hell would not be big enough to do it any harm or to have any taste. God's solution is so much bigger than our problems that no matter how big your problem you think you have, God offers us a solution that is so much bigger, infinitely bigger, that we can now receive that solution. And this is what a promise, this is the promise that is given to us in verse 15. He promises Jesus Christ that all of the sin and the nastiness, and as bad as we think it's going to get, in every generation someone says, this is like the worst thing that can happen to the world. Our, our world is going to just blow up. But God offers us something even bigger than our problems. So much bigger, in fact, that the problems, as big as we think it is, is going to be infinitesimally smaller than the solution. A lot of people see this and then we have labeled it the fall. But you see, with God, it changes. The fall of humanity turns into the grace of humanity, and it's in Jesus. The fall of humanity turns into the growth of humanity. What, we, what, people, what the enemy meant for evil, and maybe some other people want evil for us, God turns it into good. Only God can do that. What is the nastiest, most horrific situation? And God is saying, I can change that. I can change it. I am the solution. So you don't have to wallow in that pain, in that suffering. Effectively, what the serpent did was the serpent led a rebellion against God. The tree of knowledge of good and evil split humanity into two, where you have the good, the people that love God, and evil, the people who love themselves. The lie that has been given to us is that we don't need God. We have bought into this lie. We can live perfectly fine or even better without him. Let's keep on keeping him, God, in the third person. But you see, 
even though God was objectified, Jesus took the blame upon himself so that we could have grace. Even though he was objectified, Jesus took the blame upon himself so that we could have grace. You see, we are a people that have been redeemed and have been given this incredible grace. So now when we see another group of people, when I see another person suffering, I can mourn with those who mourn. I can rejoice with those who rejoice because Jesus has given us the grace of redemption. And now our relationships, slowly but surely, are becoming better and more holy, and more whole, in fact. But especially the most important relationship of all is that we can have a personal relationship with God. We have been called to follow him as his disciples. We have been called to emulate him, imitate him, Follow him. He is the one that has saved us when there was no other option because we couldn't even see it. He is the one that opened our eyes and our ears so that we could have this option. He deserves our praise and our glory. Everything that we have, we should worship God with. He is truly a God who is bigger than any problem that we could ever have. So what is it that is holding you back? What do you think your world is that is so big that God isn't bigger? We have been given the chance and opportunity now to lay it down before the cross. And I ask that you do it. What is your biggest concern? What is giving you anxiety? Why can't you sleep at night? What are you so worried about? I'm here to declare that God is bigger than that problem. What you think is impossible is possible with God. When you thought there was no way, God makes a way. God is good. And he is there for his children. And he is there for us now. Let's take this time to pray. And let's honestly ask ourselves, what is it that we need to lay down before the cross at this time? What is your biggest concern? What is in your heart that you know you need to lay down before the cross so that we can follow him? Let's pray.